Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Let's Talk Low Vision, brought to you by the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International. My name is Dr. Bill Takesta, and this evening we're going to talk about some of the latest advances in the medical treatments for various types of eye conditions. This podcast is being recorded by Mr. Dick Burden and Airs LA, and it will be available at the CCLVI website as well as at www.airsla.org. That's www.airsla.org, where we have each and every one of these podcasts there on inventory. So I'm very, very happy this evening to be able to tell you about a lot of the new medical advances that are available for some of the more common types of eye diseases as well as some of the more serious types of diseases. We're going to begin with some of these medications that we find are very, very helpful in terms of with helping those with wet macular degeneration. As many of you may already know, wet macular degeneration is the leading cause of legal blindness among adults over the age of 65. Now, to help orient ourselves, we know that the eye is made up of different tissues. And the way that the eye is able to produce vision is that the light rays from the world, or whatever it is that we're looking at, it comes through the cornea, which is the clear, transparent tissue on the very front of your eye. The cornea then focuses those light rays into the pupil, which is a black circle in the colored section of your eye. You probably have noticed your pupil if you looked at your eyes in the mirror. Maybe you have blue eyes, and in the very center, there's a black circle. Now, that is actually a hole that allows light to focus through the hole. And immediately behind the pupil, there is a lens that is called the crystalline lens. What the crystalline lens does is that it changes shape to refine the way that light will focus into the eye eventually focus onto the macula, which is the very centermost portion of the retina. So basically, the retina is a tissue that lines the inside of the entire eyeball. And as I just stated, the very centermost region of the retina is called the macula. And the macula, it contains special cells that are called cone cells that give you the ability to see details, and colors, and it also helps you to adjust the different lighting conditions. Now, what happens in macular degeneration is that those cone cells become damaged. There are two different types of macular degeneration, and the first one that we'll talk about is called wet macular degeneration. Now, the macula is like any other tissue of the body in which it does require oxygen, and other nutrients, and it also serves as a way to be able to distribute and to eliminate metabolic waste products. So there are blood vessels that are underneath the retina, and these blood vessels will bring oxygen and nutrients, and it will also remove the different types of waste. In wet macular degeneration, these blood vessels, unfortunately, will tend to leak. And when they're leaking, it then tends to damage the cells of the macula. When a person 
has wet macular degeneration. They often have very severely blurred vision. They may have blind spots in their vision. And they may also then suddenly notice that a straight line is wavy or bent. So, for example, I remember one time I had a gentleman, and he called me from Dodger Stadium. And he said to me, you know, I'm looking at the third base line at Dodger Stadium, and that line is so bent, it's so crooked, I don't know what has happened. And he definitely had a leak in the blood vessel right underneath the macula, and this was something that caused blurred vision. It caused straight lines to be bent. And when he looked at a person's face, he could not see their eyes. There was a blind spot there. So today, the treatment to actually stop those blood vessels underneath the macula from leaking is that there are medications, and these medications are now more effective than ever. In the olden days, the way that doctors would try to stop that leakage was to use a laser. And a laser beam is similar to a welding torch. And you could think of it as though you hired a plumber in your home because you had a leak of water coming out of your wall. You could get a torch and they could solder the pipes underneath the wall. But what that does is that the soldering torch or the welding torch, it will burn your wall and it will burn your wallpaper, and you'll always have an area that is damaged in that way. So today we're really happy because we do not have to use that same type of a welding torch to stop the leakage of the blood, but there are medications that could be used. The first one that was used is called Avastin, and Avastin is a medication that was initially developed to treat colon cancer. And by stopping the circulation of blood in these tumors, they thought, wow, what if it could be that we could stop the leakage of blood in this area of the macula? Well, Avastin is something that is delivered directly into the eye about once every three weeks, and it was very successful. And in fact, we see today the people who do have wet macular degeneration, their vision is much better than it was five to ten years ago when patients did not have Avastin available. Well, the company that makes Avastin then came up with another drug that is very similar to Avastin, but this is more specific to the blood vessels of the macula. In other words, these types of medications for the second drug would directly go towards those leaky blood vessels under the macula. And this is called Lucentis. And the Lucentis medication is something that has also been very, very effective for treating wet macular degeneration. The negative with the Lucentis is that it is an expensive medication. I believe that each injection is approximately $1,200, so it's very, very expensive. And again, it is one that you do have to inject once every three to four weeks. So even though these medications, Avastin and Lucentis, have been helpful, many patients wish that they didn't have to have the medication be injected as often. So a new medication that's available for the wet macular degeneration is called Ilea. And with Ilea, this is one that will allow the medication to last and work longer in the eye 
So for some people, they may only need to have an injection once every two months or once every three months. And this has made things much more convenient for the patients with wet macular degeneration. So we do see that these types of medications have really made a a world of difference for those people who have reduced vision due to the wet macular degeneration. Now, another type of eye disease that also involves blood leaking in the eye is diabetic retinopathy. Diabetes is the most common cause of vision impairment among people over the age of 45 years. And we know, especially here in the United States, the number of people who are developing diabetes is increasing very rapidly. Well, what happens in the eye with diabetic retinopathy is we find that the blood doesn't circulate through those blood vessels in the retina as well as it used to. And we find that there are areas of the retina that suddenly become deprived. They do not have enough oxygen. You could almost think of it as that if it's your lawn in your garden and you just are finding that there's something wrong with your sprinkler system where it's not putting out enough water on the lawn. Well, when this happens, it first begins to affect the peripheral retina. And this is something that is really very, very negative in the sense that when there's damage to the peripheral vision for most people, they often aren't quite as aware of it as compared to if it first hit their central vision. So for many people with diabetes, they never know that there's this problem where the peripheral retina is not receiving enough oxygen. And as time goes on, the cells in the retina, they relieve messages that state, hey, we need more oxygen, we need more blood, and the retina begins to make new blood vessels. It's really an amazing feature of the eye to be able to produce these new blood vessels. So when the eye is making these new blood vessels, it does deliver blood and oxygen and nutrients to those areas that were starving. But these new blood vessels are very weak, and they then begin to break, and they also hemorrhage. So in these particular cases, the retina is now suffering from damage in the peripheral retina. When we see patients who do have this type of leakage in the peripheral retina, the same drugs, Avastin, Lucentis, and Ilea, are now being used. And this is in contrast to using the laser. There used to be times where the laser beam would be shot into the eye a thousand or two thousand times. And what it would basically do is it would kill the retina in those areas. So it's basically stating, why don't we just go ahead and dig up the lawn? If the lawn is dying in these areas, let's just kill the lawn. That will eliminate the problem. Well, it really doesn't because when you use the laser beam and you kill the cells of the retina, the person is blind in those regions. And this is why many people with diabetic retinopathy who have received laser treatments, they may notice that they have blind spots, their night vision might be much worse, and they may notice that as they're driving or they don't see things in their peripheral vision quite as well. So 
We now find a very effective treatment using these medications in the peripheral retina. And in other cases where the diabetes has been around longer, it also will affect the central retina, specifically in the macula, just like wet macular degeneration. So these same medications can be injected in the macula, and it can stop the leakage of blood. And for many people with diabetic retinopathy, their vision will improve tremendously with these types of medications. Another medication that is also often used in diabetic retinopathy that affects the central retina is that there are different types of anti-inflammatory medications. For example, Kenalog. Kenalog is the name of a medication that can also be injected into the macula, and it reduces the swelling. You know, one of the things that most people with diabetes complain of, they complain that their vision is very, very wavy. If they look at anything that they know is supposed to be a straight line, it looks very, very wavy and distorted. And that is because there is fluid that has accumulated underneath the macula. Well, by using this medication, Kenalog, we could reduce that type of inflammation and that inflammatory response, and the patient's vision could be much, much better. I had one of our opticians, and he had diabetes, and it was unfortunately was out of control. His vision was literally 20 to over 400 in each eye, and he was just panicked. He said, I, I don't know what's happening. I, I, I just can't see. I can't drive. I, I need you to look at my eye. And when he came in, I could see that there was this type of inflammation and that kind of swelling in the macula. And I referred him to a retina specialist friend. And that morning, he injected him. And within that day, later that day, his vision had returned back to 2020. So we see that these medications are very, very helpful. Now, another type of medication that is also very frequently used for children are these same class of drugs, which are the Avastin, Lucentis, and the Ilea. Children who are born prematurely with retinopathy of prematurity, their eyes also have blood vessels that are leaking. And we want to stop the leakage of the blood in the eye because when this blood is leaking, it can create scar tissue, and the scar tissue could attach to the retina, very similar to the way that a spider web will attach to your wallpaper at home. And when the scar tissue attaches to the retina, it often will tear it, it will detach the retina, and it could cause total blindness. So when children are born premature, generally if they're born before 32 weeks gestation, these children are evaluated by pediatric retinovitreal surgeons in the intensive care unit, and in many cases, they will use these medications of Avastin, Lucentis, or Ilea to reduce that leakage of blood so that we don't have that type of scar tissue. But in the event that if there is scar tissue being developed, these surgeons are able to go in perform surgery, and to remove that type of scar tissue to prevent blindness. So what's really, really so amazing, so fantastic nowadays is that we see many children 
who are born before 26 weeks of gestation. Today, we had a young little girl whose name happened to be Blessed. Her name, her parents named her even before all this happened. She was born after 22 weeks gestation, and they were able to, first of all, save her life, but they were able to save her retinas through these types of treatments. So this is all very, very exciting. Now, we've already talked about the wet macular degeneration. Now let's talk about what is the research telling us about the dry macular degeneration. In dry macular degeneration, the cells in the macula, for some unknown reason, are simply dying with age. These patients are really at a more challenging situation because there are not many research studies that are clinically showing that there is something could be done to restore it. But the most popular type of research that has shown to be beneficial for both the dry and the wet macular degeneration is vitamin therapy. There was a study that you may have heard of called the Age-Related Eye Disease Study, Part 1, and they later followed it up with another study that was called Part 2. And the good thing about this study is it showed that a combination of vitamins can be very effective to help those who have moderate to severe macular degeneration. So what this means is basically if you have moderate or severe wet or dry macular degeneration, it would be very, very beneficial for you to take these vitamins because these vitamins have been shown to improve vision by as much as 25%, and it has been shown to slow the progression of macular degeneration. Now, what's very important to also understand that this study did not show that a person could take these vitamins and it would prevent the person from developing macular degeneration. So if you have macular degeneration, but your children, your children do not, it is not recommended that your children take these vitamins. These vitamins are only recommended for those people who do have macular degeneration. Now, at the present time, there are two different formulas. The first formula, it did include beta-carotene, vitamin C, vitamin E, and zinc. And this was the combination that was found to be very, very effective for these people with the macular degeneration. But one of the problems with that formula is that beta-carotene is something that can promote lung cancer in men who smoke. So if there's men or women who smoke, they didn't want people to mistakenly take this high dosage of beta-carotene So they substituted the beta-carotene with lutein and zeaxanthine. And this is the formula that's in the second version of this vitamin cocktail. And the results of it have been very, very similar. So at this point in time, if you do have wet or dry macular degeneration, you want to first talk with your physician to make certain that it is fine for you to take this vitamin cocktail. 
the vitamin cocktail that you can take is available through Bosch and Laum. And I know that we get this for my father and mother-in-law. We get it at Costco. And it is called Preservision number two. Preservision number two. So it's spelled almost like preserve, but it's P-R-E-S-E-R. Vision. Preservision number two. And this is something that you can take. Other studies have also shown that vitamins and other types of nutrition is very helpful also to the macula. It was years ago that a study at Harvard University found that those who consume a high dosage quantity of spinach, that was also beneficial for those who had macular degeneration. That it is those dark green leafy vegetables that are beneficial for those people who do have macular degeneration. We also recommend that people will eat fish because those omega-3 fish oils in salmon and tuna, they are also very, very helpful for those who do have macular degeneration. So I guess the point to all of this is that one can say it is healthy if you were to eat a spinach salad and maybe top it off with some salmon or some tuna you have that a couple times a week, and if you are taking the Preservision vitamin cocktail, those are things that could be very, very helpful for macular degeneration. But again, unfortunately, we do not show any signs of proof that a person who does not have macular degeneration can prevent from developing macular degeneration by taking these particular types of vitamins. Now, one of the most common questions that comes up about this is, should I be taking double the dosage? And the answer to that is, do not take double the dosage of any vitamins. We often feel that vitamins can be very, very safe because they are over-the-counter. And if you take one, you could take two, maybe three is better. But there's many different types of problems that can occur if you are taking too much of any of these types of vitamins. Another recent study has also really studied the relationship between all of these people who have macular degeneration. Why is it that some people respond better to the vitamin treatments as compared to other people? And in doing more and more detailed research, they have found that it is related to each person's genetics. Each person's genetics, even if you're a brother or a sister, it could be slightly different. Now, what a gene is, a gene is a piece of DNA, and this DNA is located in every cell of the human body, including the cells of the retina and the other tissues of the eye. Now, what DNA does is it tells the cell what types of proteins to make. And the reason it's important for the cell to know which proteins to make is because these proteins are involved in the chemical reactions. And these chemical and metabolic reactions are what are responsible for developing a tissue or developing a reaction so that when light hits the cell, 
it will send a signal to another cell and be received by the brain, and so on and so forth. So we know that for many different people, our genes might be a little bit different. And there's different things that can cause genetic changes. For example, it is thought that if you're around radiation, that it can alter your genes. It is thought that insecticides and pesticides can cause genetic mutations. And my doctors have implied that this might be the reason why my genes suddenly went bad and I became blind. It is also possible that smoking and alcohol or other types of things can cause these genetic mutations. So what happens is that when a person has a genetic mutation, it is something that can affect one of the chemical reactions that's involved in vision. And for some people, it may be that that genetic mutation is such that that person requires a particular vitamin or a mineral to make that chemical reaction work normally again. So these people who have a genetic mutation and they are missing a particular vitamin or mineral or nutrient, these people are the people who do respond favorably to a higher degree from these types of vitamin therapies. Whereas another person who may not have the same genetic mutation, those vitamins may not work as well. They may be effective, but it may not be quite as effective. So there's a tremendous amount of research being performed in the area of gene therapy. Now, for people who have other types of diseases to the retina, there are so many very, very exciting types of gene therapy tests that are available to you today. First of all, you can speak with your ophthalmologist and have your ophthalmologist take a sample, and what they often will do is they may take a little vial of blood, and they may swab the inside of your cheek, and they could send it to the laboratory. One of the laboratories is the National Eye Institute at the National Institutes of Health, and there's also going to be other hospitals throughout the country. Here in Los Angeles, UCLA, and Dr. Michael Gorin does that. So if you have a condition such as retinitis pigmentosa, Labor's congenital amaurosis, Stargardt's disease, macular degeneration, all of these types of eye conditions are really being studied carefully, and they will take that sample of blood and your inner cheek, and they could study the genes. Now, what's very interesting about this type of genetic studies is that each human being has their own makeup of genes and DNA. The DNA of you is different than the DNA of your brother or your sister, or your mother and father. And you inherit one gene from your mother and one gene from your father, and together it makes a set. And this is, again, how these proteins are being controlled to be built in the cells. Now, what we have found is that for many different types of diseases, sometimes it may be that there is one gene that is abnormal that is causing 
the vision to be poor. And in other cases, it might be that there's five or six different genes that are not producing the right protein, and this is why the vision is poor. Let's take, for example, retinitis pigmentosa. Retinitis pigmentosa is often an inherited disease that affects the peripheral retina and later the central retina. There are over 90 different types of mutations that are known that are related to retinitis pigmentosa. You, if you have retinitis pigmentosa, let's say that it's at gene number one. And for another person, it might be that there's a problem at gene 932. But the important thing here is that through the genetic studies, the scientists are now able to tell you which gene is abnormal or which genes are in fact abnormal. And this is very, very exciting because with this data that's being collected, we can now move into the field of genetic engineering. Now, genetic engineering is when you actually will insert a healthy gene inside the eye so that that gene will direct the production of the normal protein. And with the development of that normal protein, we hope that's going to result in better vision. This is something that has gained a lot of press over the last five years with a condition that's called Leber's congenital amaurosis. And this condition, it is a congenital condition, and it's very similar to retinitis pigmentosa in that it does affect the retina cells. Well, one of the things that the research did is that they did find that there is a particular gene called the RPE65 gene that was not normal in these children and adults who have Leber's congenital amaurosis. There are also other genes that may be abnormal for people with Leber's congenital amaurosis. But for the research study, what they did is that they studied all the people who had a specific abnormality to the RPE65 gene. And they then took a healthy piece of the gene, and they inserted it inside of a virus. And the reason that they did that is that the virus has the capability of replicating its DNA over and over and over and over again. So they thought, if we insert this normal piece of gene into the virus and insert the virus in the eye, we can allow the virus to make this protein, and maybe it will improve vision. Well, lo and behold, the studies have found, and it's being performed at Philadelphia's Children's Hospital, that this gene therapy, it is effective. And they have been able to improve the vision of children who had such poor vision that they had difficulty with walking independently, and these kids are now able to walk they could run in the dark. They could ride bicycles. So this is extremely, extremely exciting because we now have a technique that could identify the bad gene and replace a normal gene in that eye to produce the normal proteins 
and to then to restore vision. So because this has been done with Lieber's congenital amaurosis, now more and more researchers are studying the relationship between the abnormal genes and other conditions. We now know that there are abnormal genes that are related to macular degeneration, diabetics, retinopathy, retinitis pigmentosa, congenital cataracts, all sorts of other kinds of diseases out there all have genetic markers where we know which genes are abnormal. So to me, I just think, my gosh, this is, this is absolutely incredible. Because of the fact that we are really getting down to the basic development of the cells and producing the appropriate proteins to make those cells work. This is not something where we're saying we need to remove a retina and try to attach another retina and make all these microcircuitry work. This is something that is really on the biochemical level, and it's very, very exciting. Now, what about cataracts? I talked about how cataracts are often an inherited type of condition. And is it something that's very important that we would actually use gene therapy for children or adults who were born with cataracts? And what we really find is that cataracts do not have to be a major cause of vision impairment. We find that the new surgical techniques allow the doctors to remove the cataract at such a very young age that the visual cells of the brain can develop in children who have congenital cataracts quite well. The important thing is that for the child with a congenital cataract that they are diagnosed and that they receive surgery as early as possible. You might say, why is it so important that they receive the surgery? Why don't we wait till they're five years old and a bit stronger? Well, the reason that that is not recommended is that if a child does not receive cataract surgery early enough, the child is going to go through the developmental years of life without seeing clearly. And when there isn't that type of clear vision, the brain cells that process visual information are not stimulated and those brain cells don't grow fully. When the brain cells do not grow fully early on, those children will not have normal vision. And in most cases, they will be legally blind. So if we can identify the child who has a cataract early on, remove it with surgery, and then perform the visual stimulation to stimulate the growth of those brain cells, these kids can develop a much higher level of vision. Now, one of the things that's very, very easy is that we can identify a cataract in a newborn without really doing anything that special. We have an instrument. We can look in the eye, and less than five seconds, we could tell if there is a cataract. One of the things that I want all of you to know about the new treatments for cataract surgery is that cataract surgery is so much more precise and it is safer than ever today because of the use of the new equipment. When I was going to school, you know, in the 1980s, long time ago at UCLA, 
I was working in the Jewel Stein Eye Institute, and at times we would go in, we would check up on people after they've had surgery. And many of these people did receive cataract surgery. And I remember they were asked to stay overnight in the hospital. They had a gigantic patch over their eyes. And what these surgeons would do during the surgery, they would literally cut like half of the eyeball open to be able to remove the cataract lens in the eye. The crystalline lens that I talked about, it is again located right behind the pupil and it looks very similar to a plain M&M. Not the peanut M&M, but the plain one. So in the old days, what they would have to do is to cut half the eye open and then they would have to pull out that cataract and it was a very, very invasive surgery. After, they would sew the eye back up and they would wait for the eye to heal and then we would make these people Coke bottle glasses. I mean, these are very, very thick glasses. Now, today, the whole procedure is so different. First of all, there is not a large incision made in the eye. Number two, we do not have to give people Coke bottle glasses because we could implant an artificial lens in the eye. And number three, a person doesn't even have to stay in the hospital for this procedure. They can do it in the office, and these people will be home in a couple of hours. Well, one of the latest treatments that are being used now is the use of a laser beam. Now, what lasers generally do is you could think of lasers like in Star Wars, and they cut. They could cut metal. They could cut tissue. What they now do is they use a particular type of laser, and they will shine it on the cataract, and then they'll begin to slice the cataract. We could slice it so that it's like you're cutting many pieces of apple pie. And what's really important about the fact that we could cut it into smaller pieces is that that makes it much easier for the surgeon to remove those dirty pieces. So let's say that you had a cataract and the lens that was inside your eye was dirty by actually using this laser to cut it into small pieces, we could actually stick a small tube in there and it will just vacuum out all of those pieces. And that eliminates the need for the doctor to use excessive force to pull out that cataract. The main reason why this is so important is because retinal detachment is the one major complication of cataract surgery. Because we can now use the laser beam to cut the cataract into small pieces, the risk of a retinal detachment is much less. Number two, we also now have the ability to use the laser to make a small hole in what we call the capsule, which makes it, again, easier to remove the cataract parts and pieces. And then an artificial lens, like a contact lens, is now inserted into the eye. Now, what's really great about these types of new artificial lens implants is that they are better than ever before. In the olden days, the artificial lens implant could only focus at one distance. But now we have multifocal intraocular lens implants. So what this means is that the person who receives cataract surgery 
can be given a multifocal lens, and this will allow the person to focus far and near and at middle distances. Number two, these intraocular lens implants that they put in your eyes, they are now treated so that it blocks out all of the ultraviolet radiation. So what this essentially means is that many children, many adults now who receive cataract surgery, they won't need to wear glasses at all because the intraocular lens implant will allow them to focus far and near and it will filter out the ultraviolet radiation to protect their eyes. We also have a new research for people who have cataracts. If a person has cataracts and macular degeneration, there is an implant that could be put into the eye, and it is a telescope. Now, that is what's so amazing. As a low-vision optometrist, we have always been prescribing glasses that has a built-in telescope in it, and we would make a small telescope that's going to be about the size of a, of a peanut, I would say. But now, there is a technology to implant a telescope inside the eye so that nobody would ever know that a person has that low-vision device in their eye. It magnifies the print or the image about two and a half times, but it does require training that a person learns to use it. It's really a matter of adjusting the brain to be able to know how to judge how close or far something is when looking through that telescope. But it is something that is very effective, and it has changed the lives of so many people. Now, this type of telescope, it is only available for those people who do have a cataract along with macular degeneration. And your vision has to be 20 over 160 or worse. Now, before they do the surgery, you'll go to a low vision clinic and they'll show you what things would be like with a pair of simulator glasses. The other nice thing about this is that it is covered by Medicare. And I was very surprised to find that Medicare was going to cover that. I believe the cost of it is about $25,000, but it is billable to Medicare. And the last thing that I'm going to talk about before we open up to uh, some of your questions is we're going to talk about some of this type of biotechnological type of vision. And this is the Argus ARGUS-60 implant. Now, one of the things that people have always talked about is, couldn't it be possible that the surgeons could implant a chip in the eye and we would see again, just the way that Steve Austin, the bionic man, used to see in the old TV show? Well, we are not really quite as far advanced as Steve Austin, but there is a device that is called the Argus 60, and this is clinically approved and this also is now approved by Medicare. This is really a very high-tech device. And what it does involve is it involves the use of a pair of glasses. And these are very fashionable types of glasses that has a small camera. You would never know there's a camera in there. Now, what the camera does, it's a high-resolution camera that takes a picture of everything that is in front of you. And these signals are then sent to a small little computer processor that's in the earpiece of the glasses. 
Now, what that particular type of computer will do, it's going to then interpret that picture, and it then sends electrical signals to the chip, an electrical chip that has been implanted behind your eye. The chip then is going to receive these electrical signals, and it's going to then send electrical signals through the optic nerve, and it will then be processed by the brain. So it's very, very amazing because people with retinitis pigmentosa who have been blind, totally blind, have been able to regain vision. They've been able to identify the difference between a plate and a bowl and a soup mug. They've been able to identify large letters. They've been able to use this to navigate and walk through different obstacle courses and things like that. And so this is something that is very, very, very exciting. It is now being performed across the United States. And at this point in time, the limitation to this is that the implant that is in the retina, it has 60 electrodes. The first one that came out, it had only 16 electrodes. This one now has more. It has 60 electrodes. But what this means is that the resolution or the detailed level of vision that one sees through the Argus 60 is nothing in comparison to that of the human eye because the macula has millions, millions of little electrodes. So as a result, people are not going to be able to see small detailed information with this device, but it is something that has really, really changed the lives of many. And I guess all in all, what I'd like to say is that over the past five years, the amount of research that has been done, it is just absolutely staggering. And the amount of money that venture capitalists are investing to try to find the cures for these conditions, it is just really staggering. One of the ways that these researches are funded is through the Foundation Fighting Blindness, which is a nonprofit, and they do hold their vision walk. If any of you are going to be in Los Angeles, Saturday, November 1st, is the Los Angeles Vision Walk, and I'd like to invite all of you to come to that. You can find out more by going to visionwalk.org, or you could email me uh, at Dr. Bill Foundation. That's drbillfoundation at gmail.com. But it is because of these types of fundraisers that fund these projects, and it is something that's very, very exciting. The last thing that I do also want to remind all of you, what we haven't really talked a lot about here, is stem cells are really the most exciting thing. A stem cell is a cell that can become any tissue or any cell in the body. And what we now know is that we can harvest and identify stem cells from your own body. In other words, before it was thought that you could only identify and locate stem cells from uh, fetuses and embryos. But now you can harvest it from your own body, and that makes it better because we don't have to worry about rejection where your antibodies will go after it. But with this type of stem cell research, there's going to be some major things going on. I know that at this time, from the use of a stem cell, 
They have been able to develop the different tissues in the retina. They have been able to regenerate other tissues of the cornea to enable people to receive cornea transplants. So there's a lot of really, really good and exciting work. At this time, I'm going to go ahead and open up the questions. We've got about five minutes. Uh, if you have any questions, press star six, and you may introduce your name if you wish, or you could just ask a question. So does anybody have any questions? Uh, Dr. Bill, this is Stephen from Connecticut. Hi, Stephen. Um, yes, go ahead. You, thank you for a very I just was curious why with people that have RP and cataracts, and many doctors are advising not to remove the cataract because you lose the rest of your vision. Yes. You know, Stephen makes a good point. Many people who have retinitis pigmentosa, they often will develop cataracts at an early age. And many times in the past, it has been where the doctors will say, I do not recommend remove the cataract yet. It is not severe enough. The reason for this is that many times when you remove the cataract from a person who has any kind of eye disease, there is a risk that the person may suffer from a retinal detachment. This is why this new technology that we explained tonight, where they can use a laser to break up the cataract into smaller pieces, it will make it much safer for you to have cataract surgery at that time. So for a person with retinitis pigmentosa who has a cataract, there is now the technology and the equipment that makes it safer and easier to remove that cataract. But in the past, that was not available. Not all cataract surgeons will have this equipment. So you may want to call around to find out who has the laser that could break down the cataract for cataract surgery. But that is truly the state of art. And I think that that could be helpful for you, Stephen. The other Thank thing you. I want to say about the cataracts, it is not... It is not recommended that you wait too long to receive cataract surgery either. It is possible that if a person waits too long for cataract surgery, that that cataract lens can break and it could somewhat like explode. If the cataract breaks in your eye and it spreads throughout the other tissues of the eye, it will cause a very, very severe inflammatory reaction, and most people will lose their entire eye because of it. So the point to that is don't wait too long if you have a cataract surgery and consult with a cataract specialist who has this new type of technology. Is there another question out there? Carl from Atlanta, I have a question. Yes, Hello? your name is your name is what, sir? Carl from Atlanta. Yes, Carl, go ahead. Yeah, I have cataracts and I had it from trauma. I'm retired paramedic firefighter, <clears throat> but the question is they couldn't get rid of the right eye cataract. It had been there too long. They did do an operation and removed the cataract in the left eye. However, uh, my retina specialist still encourages me to go back and consider another operation, which I'm not interested in, for the right eye. But the left eye, they did a um, cataract, I think it's called refraction surgery, 
removed it. However, about six months later, they said I had posterior something capsule, which means it all fogged up again. And now it's like looking through an eggshell. And my best, on a good day, I have 2,400 vision in my one eye, but often it gets much worse than that. And my only question is, I can live with it, but my ophthalmologist says I will not return to total blindness, which I had for over a year, and my retina specialist says he's not sure of that. What is your opinion? Yes. Without examining your eyes, I can't, I can't really give you a, a medical opinion. However, sure. what I would tell you is that when a person has developed a cataract, it could be because of trauma, like in your case, or because of age. When they do remove the cataract, it is very common that the capsule that holds the artificial lens in the eye, that becomes clouded. In other words, we see this every day, every day at work, where the capsule becomes clouded. And when that happens, your vision may be as blurry as 2400, as in your case. There is a special laser beam called a YAG, Y-A-G laser, and they could very, very easily clean or put holes in that capsule to allow light to enter your eye. And for most people who have that posterior capsule type of membrane, their vision improves dramatically. So Thank you very much. But my doctor said he wouldn't. My, ophthalm, my retina specialist recommended that, and my ophthalmologist who did my last surgery said I had too many sphincter tears in the iris, whatever that means, and too much burn, um, what do you call it, tissue, scar tissue. So he recommended I not have that surgery. Okay. Well, you might want to go ahead and get a second or even a third type of uh, opinion because, again, the, the different procedures and the techniques are even more and more advanced. And I'm also wondering about the eye that still has a cataract. I'm, I'm also wondering if that cannot be removed. Because, My again, ophthalmologist said it was just too thick. And my and retina specialist says I have no, he doesn't think the retina works even if they do remove it. Okay, okay, that explains it then. But I'm also concerned. I don't want that cataract to get so large that it breaks in your eye and you have this severe inflammation. So I would say, you know, there's many, many, many good doctors over in Atlanta, and I would recommend that you would get some second and even third opinions. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Good luck. Okay. Does anybody have one last question that I, I'd be happy to take? Dr. Bill, it's Elsa. Um, Hi, my Elsa. question has to do with uh, someone who is 92 years old and is diabetic. Would it be best that she does not have surgery to remove the cataract because of her age and because of being diabetic, or do you think that there could still be hope? Yeah, that's a really good question, Elsa, and uh, I would have never thought that you're 92 years old. (laughs) (laughs) This is my grandmother. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, the first thing is that, like any type of procedure, the first thing is that we would want a physician, her general physician, to see 
how is she doing medically? How is her heart? How's her blood pressure and all of that? Mm-hmm. If all of those medical uh, findings are really normal, the next thing is that we'll have the ophthalmologist look at the retina. And if the retina does appear to be healthy, then it should be that the cataract removal could greatly, greatly improve her vision. And I have had patients of that age, and it really, really just gave them another lease on life, you know, just to see things. They couldn't believe how colorful everything looked again. So age age necessarily is not a, a reason not to have it, but I would say let's get her overall general health checked, and then we want her retina checked, just like Carl from Atlanta, how his one doctor said, well, even if we remove the cataract, the retina might not be working, so let's not do it. Mm-hmm. But in your grandma's case, it may be that the retina is working, and we remove the cataract, and it could help her quite a bit. Uh, also, at her age, she should have a Medicare, so those types of evaluations should be covered by Medicare for her, too. Okay? Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate your okay, answer. Okay, well, everybody, again, want to thank all of you for attending this evening. I also want to thank Mr. Dick Burden and Ayers LA for recording this. And then I also want to invite all of you to come to the CCLVI website where you could then listen to some of these other programs that we've had. And lastly, I'd like to remind all of you that the CCLVI, we have a book that is titled Insights into Low Vision. And I think it's a, a wonderful book where we have authors from different areas of expertise in low vision throughout the country where we talk about how do you find doctors? How can you help yourself with cooking more safely? How do you manage to groom and clothe yourself when you have low vision? So this particular book, it is available through uh, CCLVI, And for new members to CCLVI, it is free. And for existing members, it is available for a donation of $5. And so if you want any additional information on that, you could also uh, email me. Again, my email is drbillfoundation at gmail.com. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for being on the show, and we'll see you next month when we talk more about low vision.